The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, Episode 41, March 6th, 1970 through April the 11th, 1970. On March the 6th, the title track from the Beatles' forthcoming film and LP was released as a single. The title, Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be.
single let it be with all the rumors and talk of the Beatles splitting and their business situation becoming incredibly complicated it's surprising the single got out at all supposedly you know my name was to be the a side with a song called what's the new Mary Jane as the B but with all the contracts still unsolved the B side could not be released finally the title of their new movie was used and you know my name was put on the b-side and that was a song that originally John brought in we we did millions of versions of it over the years we we, we tried it once this way and we tried it another way we tried it as a straight sort of chant like a mantra <clears throat> I remember one time Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones showed up at the studio and he was a little nervous coming in on a Beatles session and we thought well he'll probably bring his guitar but no he brought a saxophone for some reason best known to himself. I think it was because he was uh, a closet sax player. But anyway, he brought it out and he opens his case and he uh, rather nervously played this little sax thing. So he said, we've got the perfect track for this to go on. And so there was a version, including uh, the saxophone you hear, will be uh, Brian Jones, a lovely man, a lovely man. So over the years, we kept coming back to this song. You know my name, look up the number. And so that's why it is really a series of various takes which have been put together to form what is probably one of my favorite Beatle tracks because it's not the most consequential or most significant, but it's one of the nicest memories for me because it was such a loon making it. Good evening. You know my name. 
That's right, look up the number. Oh, you know, you know, you know my name. You know, you know, you know my name. <laughs> you know my name. Look up the number. You know my name. Look up the number. You, you know, you know my name, baby. You, you know, you know my name. You know, you know my name. up the number from the Beatles. Let It Be hit the airwaves, March 1970. The single, that is. The film and album were still in the final stages of delay. Even Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band only took nine months for the marathon mixing sessions. But the Beatles' original recording date for Let It Be was a full 15 moons before the album's release. What took so long? It boils down to lack of communication. The Beatles and constant companion Mal Evans call the Let It Be period the hardest times to go through as a group. Back at the Lennon's Tittenhurst estate outside of London, Yoko Ono discovers once again that she is pregnant. So on March 5th, she along with John check into an exclusive London clinic for observation. Some visitors later insist that she was being weaned off of heroin with methadone. After four days, she is allowed to return home to Tittenhurst Park.
On March 15th, a promotional film for the title track of Ringo's forthcoming debut solo album, Sentimental Journey, was shot. With Neil Aspinall directing the filming, the shoot took place at the popular cabaret venue Talk of the Town. It was located at 10 Cranbourne Street near London's Leicester Square. It was produced by John Gilbert. Stars sang the song live, accompanied by the Talk of the Town Orchestra, conducted by George Martin. Here's Ringo explaining why it was filmed at the venue. We went to the Talk of the Town because I wanted to see a show there, and I was knocked out by all these stages moving round, you know, like 1940 Hollywood, which goes with the song. So we decided uh, to do it there with dancers and a band, and we had the big Dickie Ball dancing for them, you know. Ringo wore a pink bow tie and wore the same black suit he used for the photo on the cover of the Beatles' Abbey Road LP. Accompanying Ringo were backing singers Doris Troy, Madeline Bell, and Marsha Hunt. Thank you. Thank you very much. Too kind. On Monday, March 23rd, Paul McCartney returned to EMI Studios London to make and take finished master copies of his completed solo album. The session was once again booked under the name Billy Martin. McCartney had worked out a release date of April 10th with EMI. All was set for Paul's first solo album release titled McCartney. at EMI, in the same building and probably without Paul's knowledge, some well-worn tapes were once again being threaded onto machines. Alan Klein suggested that a large amount of Apple capital was tied up in those film cans and tape boxes, and Apple should do something with them. With the permission of John Lennon, George Harrison, and Alan Klein, 
It was time for the enigmatic Phil Spector and Let It Be to enter. He'd always wanted to work with the Beatles. And George Martin, Glenn Johns, and Get Back to Exit. And Glenn Johns did a terrible job on it, know, because he's got no idea, etc. Spector's invitation to reproduce the Get Back tapes and assemble an album worthy of release to accompany the Let It Be movie was a monumental effort. When Spector came around, it was like, you know, well, all right, if you want to work with, uh, with us, you know, go and do your audition, man. Do, do. And it was, he worked like a pig on it. So Phil Spector, their old standby friend and wall of sound producer of the early 60s, was asked to make a sellable product of the tape. George Harrison attended most of these Easter sessions. On March 27, 1970, Apple releases Ringo's first solo LP, Sentimental Journey. First of all, you better tell us what Sentimental Journey is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a lot of tracks of a lot of songs that were like my initiation to music. It's all the tracks that when my mother and my dad came home from the pub out the reds, they'd sing all these songs. up all my cares and woe, here I go, singing low, bye, bye, black bell, where somebody waits for me, sugar is sweet, so is she, bye, bye, black bell, no one here can love and understand me. decided you to make uh, this LP and what made you select this kind of non-Beatle music? Well, it's, it's the first solo album by me, but John has had a lot of solo albums and, and records out. But um, what, why I did this one was because this music is only the songs that I was introduced to music by. I thought, well, I'd like to do an album of ones I, songs I've written, but I take so long to write them that I would never have finished it, you know, because <laughs> I write about one a year. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I went through a lot of these songs and picked out most of them have sort of 
great memories from a certain auntie or my dad or you know all old certain people you know there's a, it's a it's like a it's a sentimental journey that's what it is yeah but these were the, what they're all how old the songs well between 30 and 40 years old and so and all of the songs on sentimental journey are that old right? yeah bye bye Black, blackbird uh, seems to be around for many years as well ring all right yes right well this was one of my dad's songs and night and day actually night and day bye bye blackbird a two of his biggies you know he used to sing in the clubs and that and um and this came about because morris gibb came over and he you know i was asking him to arrange one and if you listen to it it's got like a plunkety banjo but it, it's like that because he the night before he came over had gone to there's some pub around where they have like traditional jazz bands yeah. and uh, he got into that and so he got into the arrangement like that yeah on night and day was arranged by um count basie's arranger right. a guy called chico o'farrell uh, and um no it's such a um a different track from sentimental journey and just the arrangement you know like richard yeah. perry's a young guy and he's like a bit funky but um chico farrell who does night and day is like a big swing guy and it really you know that's turned out fine as well night and day you are the one only you beneath the moon and under the sun whether near to me or far it's no matter darling where you are i think of you night and day day and night why is it so that this longing for you follows wherever I go In the roaring traffic's boom In the silence of my lonely room I think of you Night and day Night and day Under the hide of me There's oh such a hungry yearning burning inside of me And it's all man won't be through Till you let me spend my life making love to you day and night All men won't be through Till you let me spend my life Making love to you day and night Night and day Day and night Night and day Reminds me of the Ink Spots, Ringo. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. If you heard the Ink Spots version, I mean, such that's like one of my favorite records of all time. The Ink Spots, Whispering Grass. It's such a they do it so great, and it's so such a lovely track. And it's I think 
it's turned out to be my favourite on the album. It turned out so well. And uh, Ron Goodwin did it, and he, he did it really incredible, you know. And it's the first time he's arranged for a, a solo artist in five years because he's doing film music all the time now. And he really did it so well, and it's got a lot of, um, like, moods to it, you know, because he's used to writing to films lately, and he's sort of done a lot of atmosphere with it, and it's really great. Why do you whisper green grass? Why tell the trees what ain't so? Whispering grass the trees don't have to know. No, no. Why tell them all your secrets? Who kissed their long ago? Whispering grass the trees don't need to know Don't you tell it to the breeze Cause they will tell the birds and bees And everyone will know Because you told the blabbering trees Yes, you told them It's no secret anymore Why tell them all the old things They're buried under the snow Whispering grass don't tell the trees Cause the trees don't need to know Tell them all the old things They're buried under the snow Whispering grass Don't tell the trees Cause the trees don't need to know I'm a Fool to Care originally come from, Rango? Uh, well, it came from uh, a very early album I had yeah. by uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford. Right, yeah. And um, it doesn't really relate to uh, an antique. Most of them do. A few of them just relate to music I, the first sort of music I ever bought. You know? yeah. And uh, that's one, and this turned out so great. Uh, Klaus Vorman did this one, and when oh, he really? first did it with the session musicians, he didn't really make it. And so we took off the session guitar and yeah. put him on guitar. And it just lopes along now. It really is a fine track. I'm a fool to care. 
treat me this way I know I love you But what can I do I'm a fool to care I'm a fool to cry When you tell me goodbye You left me so blue When you were untrue I'm a fool to care I know I should laugh And call it a day But I know I would cry If you went away I'm a fool to care When you don't care for Should I pretend I lose in the end? I'm a fool to care. Have I told you lately that I love you? All those songs, you know those songs. No, it's not in front. You're not in front. Have I told you lately that I love you? Could I tell you once again somehow? Have I told with all my heart and soul how I adore you, darling? I'm telling you now. This heart would break into if you refuse me. I'm no good without you anyhow. Dear, have I told you lately that I love you? Well, darling, I'm telling you now. Have I told you lately that I miss you? When the stars are shining in the sky Have I told you why the nights are long When you're 
all those songs they were all the first sort of songs I ever heard and it was a, a natural thing for me so I called George and told him this idea then I wanted to make some sort of hook out of it Ringo wanted the best arrangers in the world to put together a group of sentimental chestnuts so I mean I know every track arranged by someone else you know we got Count Basie's arranger and Quincy Jones, and Oliver Nelson, Chico O'Farrell, Ron Goodwin, Johnny Dankworth, Elmer Bernstein, Les Reed, along with George Martin, Paul McCartney, Klaus Vorman, and even Maurice Gibb from the Bee Gees. And Richard Perry, that was the first time I used Richard Perry. Paul did Stardust, and Klaus did one. I mean, I just called a lot of people, and they arranged a track each, which I thought would give it something else besides me just doing standards.
The cover picture is curious. It's the nearest pub to Ringo's home in Dingo, his childhood home in Liverpool. He may have heard some of the songs on the album there, but it was probably his mom's favorite place, and therefore strengthens the story that the record was for her. Ringo, I think all those songs could be called golden standards, right? Yeah, yeah, sentimental feeling. I think everybody knows it. You know, even if they don't know who wrote it or who did it originally, but. I'm sure everybody's mother has sang this at some time. Yeah, in England. And uh, it's it's funny because the album is going to be called Stardust at the beginning. But it looks so bad. It was such a bad pun, you know, Stardust with a double R. Oh. And then we did this track. <laughs> and it means the same, you know. Yeah. Sentimental journey or Stardust. You know, it was like that pun, like dust of the old songs. Ah. And um, and so we decided to call it Sentimental Journey, and this is arranged by a guy called Richard Perry, who does Tiny Tim, and he's just been doing Ella Fitzgerald lately. He's just oh, yeah. a young guy from L.A. Louisiana. And he made a tape over there and sent it over you. Yeah. And uh, it turned out so great that we decided to make it the title track.
that takes me back I never thought my heart would be so yearning Why did I decide to hold Got to take the Ringo starting to pack up for his sentimental journey. And what do you plan after this? What do you plan for the future? I plan to do a country and western album. <laughs> See? Yeah, because I really like country music, you know. And um, so I'm just at the moment trying to get two LPs together. And I've finished this one now. I wanted to do it for a long time. And now I'll, next I'll do the country one. George Harrison. Ringo's just completed a great album. Uh, I think it's called... Um, uh, what's it called, Ringo? Uh, <laughs> Ringo sings Ringo? <laughs> no, it was going to be called Ringo Stardust, but it's not. Sentimental Journey, it's called. And it's all the songs that Elsie and Harry and his uncle and aunties, that's his father and mother, they used to all sing and have parties all the time. So he sings all these old songs with the sort of old arrangements. He doesn't do a sort of modern arrangement. Yeah. And it's really a nice album. Then John's doing an album, a Plastic Ono album. I think he's going to do that with Phil Spector. And I think Paul's doing an album which is, I should imagine, like, if you remember Eddie Cochran did a, a couple of tracks, like Come On Everybody, where he played bass, drums, guitar, and sang. So Paul's doing this sort of thing where he's going to play all the instruments himself which is nice because he couldn't possibly do that in the Beatles you know if it was a Beatle album automatically Paul gets stuck on bass Ringo gets on drum so in a way it's a great relief for us all to be able to work separately at the same time and so maybe if um, if I get a chance I'd like to do an album as well just to get rid of a lot of songs mm. so maybe I'll just do a George album a George album <laughs> and so I'll try and get that together sometime during this summer and I expect by that time we should be ready to do a new Beatle album. On March 29th at Wembley Studios in Wembley, Ringo appears on David Frost's London weekend show, Frost on Sunday, where he promotes his new LP. Sentimental Journey, and it's been done with a special motive in mind by a man you know very well. Will you welcome him now to join us, Mr. Ringo Starr. David also asks about the Beatles. Will we ever see the four of you in concert together again, or only on records, do you think? Only on records, up to now. At the moment, you see, what we're all doing is, like, I'm doing my album. I've just finished it, and everyone else is doing albums. And maybe when we get all them out of the way, whoop. Whoop. <laughs> That's the mice again. Yes, yeah. we'll, um, we'll make, make a few more records. But not concerts, probably. Not yet, no. Also on March 29th, after rumors and speculation, John and Yoko admit that they went to the London clinic because Yoko is pregnant. Okay. They also announced that they found out that it will be a boy. Well, hold on, John. John, hold on. It's gonna be alright. Gonna win the fight. Oh, now hold on, Yoko. Yoko, hold on. 
Needless to say, Lennon was ecstatic about Yoko's pregnancy. Then, on Tuesday, March 31st, Ringo Starr started the day by giving an interview to BBC Radio 2 in which he had insisted the Beatles group was likely to work together again once their solo projects were complete. Maybe you'll point out what the other three Beatles are doing at the moment. The Beatles are at the moment doing individual things. Uh, I've just done this album. Paul has finished an album of all, well, he's finished one of all the songs he's written you know, as well. he's a writer. Yeah. George has produced everyone around at the moment. Um, and John is going to start his album soon. He's going to start this week, but he's had a bit of a cold, so he's not going to do it yet. Uh-huh. He'll start next week, I think. Uh-huh. And so at the moment, we're all getting out the way, all the little things that we want to do ourselves, you know, That's now right. we've got a bit of time. When we've all done our own album, then maybe we'll do a, a piece of album. Meanwhile, George Harrison, too, was giving an interview explaining the state of the group. Even Ringo is writing more songs. We just cut a track in London, you know, Ringo's song called uh, It Don't Come Easy, it's called, and so maybe put that out as a single. But Paul and John and myself have got just so many songs. I think this is a good way, you know, if we do our own albums, that way we don't have... uh, to compromise. I mean, we lose whatever we get from each other. We sacrifice that in order to, you know, do total sort of thing, you know, because in a way, Paul wants to do his songs his way. He doesn't want to do his songs my way. And I don't want to do my songs their way, really. And uh, I'm sure that after we've all completed an album or even two albums each, then that novelty will have worn off. It was whoever would be the heaviest would get the most songs done, so consequently I couldn't be bothered pushing like that much. Even on Abbey Road, for instance, we'd record about eight tracks before I got round to doing one of mine. Because, uh, you know, you say, well, I've got a song, and then we'll fall, well, I've got a song as well. And mine goes like this, and away you go. You know, it was just difficult to get in there, and I wasn't going to, you know, push and shout, but it was just over the last year or so we worked something out, which is still a joke, really. Three songs for me, three songs for Paul, three songs for John, and two for Ringo. (laughs) I wrote some songs, in fact, some songs which I feel are quite nice. I wrote about four years ago, but uh, it was more difficult for me then to, you know, get in there to do it. It was the way the Beatles took off with Paul and John's songs, and it it made it very difficult for me to get in. And uh, also, I suppose at that time I didn't have as much confidence when it came down to pushing my own material as I have now. So it took a while, you know, I think the first... I did write one song on about the second album. I left it, didn't write anymore. That was just an exercise to see if I could write. About two years later, I recorded a couple more songs, I think, Rubber Soul. And then I've had one or two songs on each album. Well, there were four songs of mine on the white, double white album. But now um, the output of songs is too much to be able to just sit around, you know, waiting to put two songs on an album. I've got to get them out, you know. 
After the interviews, both George and Ringo headed to the Apple offices on Savile Row for a meeting with John and Alan Klein. At the meeting, it was discussed that a problem remained over release schedules. Apple was planning to release the group's album Let It Be on the 24th of April and push back Paul McCartney's debut album titled McCartney from April the 10th to June the 4th. My release date was firmly fixed. Tony Bramwell, Apple promotion manager at the time. There was a lot of controversy as to whether, in fact, his album should be released at the same time in, in competition with the Beatles album. And the other Beatles suggested it would be easier if his album was delayed to allow for Let It Be to make its initial impact. And then the McCartney album would be virtually the follow-up to Let It Be. Let It Be had been brought forward by Alan Klein to coincide with the premiere of the group's film, fearing that having two Beatles-related albums in quick succession would hurt sales. Also given the fact that Ringo's album, Sentimental Journey, had also just been released. Since Let It Be was a group project with various multimedia elements, and McCartney was a relatively straightforward album release, the Beatles LP took precedent. John Lennon wrote to EMI saying, We have arrived at the conclusion that it would not be in the best interests of this company for the record to be released on that date. Lennon and George Harrison then wrote to McCartney informing him of their decision. The letter stated, Dear Paul, we thought a lot about yours and the Beatles LPs, and decided it's stupid for Apple to put out two big albums within seven days of each other. Also, there's Ringo's and Hey Jude. So we sent a letter to EMI telling them to hold your release date until June 4th. There's a big Apple Capital convention in Hawaii then. We thought you'd come around when you realized that the Beatles album was coming out on the 24th of April. We're sorry it turned out like this. It's nothing personal. Love, John and George. Harry Krishna, a mantra a day keeps Maya away. The letter was sealed in an envelope marked From Us to You and left at Apple's reception for a messenger to deliver to McCartney's home at 7 Cavendish Avenue. However, Starr agreed to take it round in person. Ringo offered to go round to see Paul and try and explain this to him. Ringo recalled, I didn't think it fair that some office lad tried taking that round. By this time, McCartney had long tired of arguing over Apple's future, and the various parties were more likely to communicate by letter or through their managers rather than face-to-face -face interviews. McCartney might once have agreed with the logic behind the decision to postpone his album, but after months of acrimony, he was in no mood for conciliatory arguments. The contents of the letter left him furious. Which resulted in a strong argument. Ringo later recalled that moment at Paul's house. I went to see Paul. To my dismay, he went completely out of control, shouting at me, prodding his finger towards my face, saying, Fuck off! I'll finish you now, and you'll pay. He told me to put on my coat and get out of my house. I did so. And he did. Starr was immensely upset by the exchange and reported back to Apple. Lennon and Harrison agreed to let McCartney's album come out as planned and delayed the release of Let It Be. Paul's reason for being so firm about the date of issue was simple. With all the business dramas going on, he didn't believe that the Let It Be film and album were as imminent as had been stated, and so was afraid that his production would be delayed further. While McCartney had scored a superficial victory, his relations with the drummer took a number of years to fully recover. You know, there's that famous old saying, you always hurt the one you love. And we all love each other, and we all know that, but we still sort of hurt each other occasionally, you know, where we just misunderstand each other, and we go off.
always take the sweetest rose and crush it until the petals fall. You always break the kindest heart with a hasty word you can't recall. So if I broke your heart last night, it's because I love you most of all. On April 1st, John and Yoko issue a hoax press release, kind of an April Fool's prank, announcing that they have both entered the London Clinic for a dual sex change operation. In reality, the couple enroll themselves in a four-week course of primal therapy with the American psychologist Dr. Arthur Janoff at his private London hospital, located at 20 Devonshire Place. In a nutshell, a primal therapy allowed us to feel feelings continually, and those feelings usually make you cry. That's all. John was impressed by Janoff's book, The Primal Scream, Primal Therapy, The Cure for Neurosis. The book came through the post, and the thing said primal scream. Now, you know she's been screaming a long time, <laughs> right? We get so many books from people, and they, uh, there was a book called Primal Scream that came to us, and Joe was saying, oh, this is you, Primal Scream, this is great, you know, and he started reading. And we were pretty under pressure then. It was early days together, and we were living in Ascot in the big house, and there was still a lot of shit coming down on us. We were getting really wired about it all, and I just particularly was more wanting it than Yoko, but the primal scream, the very name primal scream got me. I didn't have to read the book, just the title was enough. It registered something inside me, made my heart flutter. I got nervous reading it. Then I read in the book, and it seemed to make what the book just said was people's um, experience in there. Well, I didn't read anything that Janoff said. I just read, you know, Charlie so-and-so went in and he, this is what happened to me. And it was all registering with me, you know. And I thought, that's me. That's me. And so what is it? They get to this thing and then they scream and feel better? Okay, it's, you know, uh, it's something other than taking a tab of acid and feeling better. Dr. Yanov's idea is that his patients should have what he calls a primal experience. That is, they should relive the pain of their own birth. His theory is that the pain of birth can have catastrophic effects that cause lifelong tensions in the child. By helping them retrace their experiences in carefully controlled conditions, 
Dr. Yanov claims his patients find their way back into their mother's wombs. So uh, I thought, let's try it, you know. And uh, we called him and he came over, you know. They were supposed to review the book, but evidently they called me and asked me to come to London to treat John, who was in bad shape. The, they do this thing, you know, where they mess around with you until you reach a point where you hit this screen thing and you go with it and they encourage you to go with it and you kind of make a kind of physical, mental, cosmic breakthrough through the screen itself. After that, it's, it's just up to you, really. I can only compare it with acid in as much as you take the trip and what you do with it afterwards yeah. when the drug's worn off yeah. is what you do with it afterwards and the drug's worn off, right? Well, but there's no taking away from the initial scream. That's the one. The rest of it is just like, all right, mm-hmm, uh, you know. As the Lennons underwent primal therapy, work continued on the new Beatles LP at EMI Studios London. It was the climax of Phil Spector's work for the album Let It Be. It entailed the overdub of lavish orchestral and choral tracks onto the crusty universe, the long and winding road, and I Me Mine. It was the very last recording session for a Beatles album, and it featured the work of Ringo, who played drums on all three songs to augment the orchestra. Spectre did not arrange and conduct the orchestral scores himself. Richard Hewson, a top musical arranger who arranged Mary Hopkins' track Those Were the Days, was brought in for that purpose. But the size and scope of the ensemble was pure specter. Here was the wall of sound on a Beatles record. 18 violins, 4 violas, 4 cellos, a harp, 3 trumpets, 3 trombones, 1 set of drums played by Ringo, 2 guitarists, and 14 violinists. A total of 50 musicians with a then-massive bill to EMI for £1,127. Unheard of in its day. The result was a complete reverse of their original idea, with strings, brass, and choral groups overdubbed on various tracks. On April 2nd, Paul McCartney tells the British paper The Evening Standard, We all have to ask each other permission before any of us does anything without the other three. My own record nearly didn't come out because Klein and some of the others thought it would be too near to the date of the next Beatles album. I had to get George, who is a director of Apple, to authorize its release for me. We're all talking about peace and love, but really we're not feeling peaceful at all. McCartney had enough of Alan Klein, Beatles Business, Apple, Lennon, Harrison, Ringo, music publishing and ownership rights, and the overall status of the group. It really got very weird. You'd spend your days arguing about business, arguing with the other Beatles. So something that had been full of artistic freedom was now a nightmare, and I couldn't handle it. On April 9th, Paul appears in a five-minute London weekend TV segment singing Maybe I'm Amazed.
also on April 9th in the afternoon, Paul phoned John at Janoff's clinic to inform him of his new plans and new musical direction. Lennon recalls the conversation. He called me in the afternoon of that day and said, I'm doing what you and Yoko were doing last year. Last year. I said, good, you know, because the, the, the time last year, they were all looking at us too, as if we were strange trying to make a life together and doing other things than being fab, fat myths. So he rang me up on that day and said, I'm doing what you and Yoko are doing and putting out an album, and I'm leaving the group too, he said. I said, good, you know, I was a little, you know, feeling a little strange, because he was saying it this time, you know, although it was a year later. And I said, well, I said, good, you know, because he was the one that wanted the Beatles most. And then the midnight papers came out, you know. The next day, it's announced that Paul has left the Beatles. On April the 10th, 1970, Paul McCartney officially resigned from the Beatles. Because of personal, business, and musical differences. Paul McCartney. I was putting out a, a crazy little release, press release, with the McCartney album, because someone had said to me, we need some press on this, so you'd better do something. And I didn't want to sit down and be interviewed. I didn't feel secure enough to do that, you know. So I said, well, we'll make up a kind of question and answer thing. So I said to, actually, it was Peter Brown. I said to him, write me out a questionnaire of what you think they'd ask me. And they said, he, he wrote it all out. So I just filled it all in like a questionnaire. And it all came out weird. The press got it. It looked like I was trying to do a real number. John then thought, aha, you know, he's, he's done the announcement of the Beatles split. Lennon reacted to McCartney's announcement, not with anger, but regret. No, I wasn't angry. I was cursing because I hadn't done it. <laughs> He certainly sold a record that virtually didn't have any message in it. You know, it's one of the... Well, you don't have to have a message in a record, but he just did a great hype, you know. I just uh, missed it. I wanted to do it, you know. Should have done it. I think, damn shit, what a fool I was. (laughs) Not to do what Paul did, which is use it to sell a record. I wasn't angry. I was just, shit, you know. I mean, he's a good PR man, Paul. I mean, he's about the best in the world, probably. He really does a job. We were all hurt that he didn't tell us that what he was going to do, but he, I think he claims that he didn't mean that to happen, but that's bullshit. But I mean, I thought, you know, months after, someone had better do it. Because no, actual fact, what we were doing was signing contracts that were saying the Beatles were still going. Apple press officer Derek Taylor says they do not want to split up, but the present rift seems to be part of their growing up. At the moment, they seem to cramp each other's styles. Derek, is it true or are the Beatles really finished? No, not until they die. As long as they live and as long as they like each other, that uh, anything can happen. And how do we understand today's developments? Well, today's developments are interesting. They're Paul's first clarification of his position. And, and uh, alongside the album, which is entirely solo, right down to the packaging, uh, they seem to show... Um, desire on his part to show that he too can go it alone for a time like John has. John's done it by deed and and Paul's done it with an album and a a few words. But Paul says in his announcement that he cannot conceive of a date when he and John Lennon will work together again. I'm talking about Beatles or songwriting. I think it's been clear, you know, for a long time that the songwriting they did together wasn't really the key to it. They're both able to write alone. The reason they wrote together really was for speed and also because they were on the road together a lot. But for years, many songs have clearly been McCartney's song or Lennon's song. But I think that the fact that he says he doesn't foresee a time is, uh, I think that's sad. Um, but 
the future is open. But I think it's sad. I think if Paul had wanted the Beatles to end, he would have ended it in, in the statement, but he hasn't. He says, I think it's in there, is the break temporary or permanent? He says, I don't know. He does say that he no longer has any relationship with the business advisor that's... He never did have, though. And part of the problem is that he doesn't like Alan Klein. Alan Klein comments... He is uh, obligated into Apple for a considerable number of years, so uh, his disassociating himself with me has really no effect. So it's not wholly personal reasons? No, it's a bit, he says personal business and musical. It's a desire. They left school, you see, and became Beatles. They never were independent people. They left a collective environment like school, and then they became Beatles. And none of them ever found what they could make alone, so now they're finding out. And it's healthy enough. That as long as the four of them are alive, then, then there still is a Beatles. There's no such thing as an ex-Beatle, or a former Beatle, or a retired Beatle, because um, the Beatles are something other than a pop group. I mean, many pop groups are broken up, but the Beatles are not a pop group. They're an abstraction, a sort of a repository for many, for many things. Paul's last statement here in this interview is, my only plan is to grow up. Hmm. He seems to think that that has to be done now outside the well, context. Well, it has to be done really all the time until you die. I mean, to assume that you're grown up at 27 would be a mistake, wouldn't it? If you're fully grown up at 27, then you might as well die right then and there. How do you see things, Mavis? I'm glad that a lot of unanswered questions have been answered. And I'm also glad that Paul hasn't definitely said that there's a split because he hasn't said this. And I'm glad of it. And as Derek said, that if there was going to be a split, he would have said so. Listen, you know it's not as simple as that, that the Beatles have broken up. Because what if they came together again then? So there is no split as long as there's life. No one splits with anyone. Japan, like, is no longer the yellow peril. And can you imagine a situation in 1944 when, when Prince Charles is sitting with Hirohito, who was a real, he was a Jap bastard. He was the enemy. But he's now talking to Prince Charles. And um, he says, I'm not the sun god anymore, so let me stay. So the, so the Americans, you know. John, if the Beatles don't get together again in the foreseeable future, do you think they'll, their role can ever be taken over by anyone else? Well, no, their role, what is their role? They, they are, they are, you see. That's another, you're simplifying. What, what role? What is the Beatles' role? The word that the Beatles means to everyone in this country. It means something. Can that something ever be replaced? No, uh, but it doesn't have to be replaced as long as something as good as it uh, is also, also exists. I think that whatever they are, always, you know, it's always there, whatever they've been. And uh, it's part of all our growing up, the Beatles. The real fans will be the first to understand all of this. Well, the fans who are gathered outside right now seem to generally have an interpretation that it's his wife. It's Paul McCartney's wife, the evil one. They're calling her all sorts of names. Why do you think Paul McCartney's leaving? Why? don't really know why. The only person I can really blame 
or put anything on is Linda all of us all of, yeah all of us really is Linda yeah. Eastman who's yeah. Linda Eastman <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> That's it. Who is it? What is Who it? is she to, to break the law? Who is she? I don't know. Technically, she's supposed to be Paul's wife. But she's his ruler, his guardian. She says he jumps. Why, I don't know. I wish I did. But it's it's just too bad. A genius like that, yes. the man that he once was, I mean... You can't. You can't just. You just can't do. You just can't let a woman do that to a man, can you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the truth. Yes. Well, she's bound to be a scapegoat, isn't she? Because if they're girls with some sort of image of Paul as an available bachelor, which is difficult to eradicate, then they'll they'll see they'll see and see and speak about Linda feel the same way. And it's not just the kids that like Paul. Right? No. no. Everybody. It started in the beginning. You're just saying that because you like Paul best. Just it's because jealousy. You're jealous. But when everybody comes to you and says that you, they can't stand it for the same reason you do, then that what you're saying isn't bad at all. Then it's the truth. It means something. Why would Paul's wife want him to leave the Beatles? Oh, oh my oh. God. <laughs> do you want to say it? No, you... Margot, what? Why does she want him to leave the Beatles? Because she wants to break him up. I don't know. Why? But why does she want to break him up? She wants. She 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 can do to a man. She had a five-dollar bet that she was going to marry Paul McCartney in the beginning. And what kind of a person is that to bet somebody that you're going to marry him? I mean, if you love a person, right? So who knows what she's going to do now and what her purpose is for doing all this? If you love somebody, you don't do things like that. the most world-famous group up. And then when she's finished with him, then she'll drop him and he'll be sitting there not knowing where to go. Now I watch you sitting there Seen the passers-by all stir Like you have no place to go But there's so much they don't know about Apple's Cup You've been stood around for years See my smiles and touch my tears How it's been a long, long time Now you've been on my mind, my Apple's Cups Apple scrubs, apple scrubs, how I love you, how I love you. Apple scrubs, apple scrubs, how I love you, how I love you. In 
the fog and in the rain Through the pleasures and the pain On the step outside you stand With your flowers in your hands My apple scrub While the years they come and go But your love must surely show That beyond all time and space We're together face to face My apple scrub The small gathering on Savile Row is only the beginning. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. Paul has called a halt to the Beatles' activities. They could be dormant for years. This is Apollo Control, Houston, at uh, 17 hours, 23 minutes, uh, now onto the flight of Apollo 13. Our uh, digital displays presently show the Apollo 13 spacecraft at 79,919 nautical miles away from Earth. Hello there, uh, Houston, uh, 13. 13, Houston, go ahead. Gosh, we forgot. We'd like to hear what the news is. Okay, there's not a whole lot to it. Um, well, let's see. We'll start with the... Uh, let's start with sports. What the heck? The uh, Astros survived 8-7. to seven. The Braves got five or six runs in the... Five runs in the ninth inning, but they just... They just made it. And in the other important game of the day, the Cubs were rained out. Uh have all the rest of the scores. You can tell me if you want any of them. They had earthquakes in Manila and other areas of the island of Luzon. There were uh, three tremors and they kept the building shaking for about a half an hour or so. And it was about a five on the Richter scale. Okay, let's see. The Beatles have announced they will no longer perform as a group. The quartet is reported to have made in excess of a half billion dollars during their short musical career. However, uh, rumors that they will use this money to start their own space program uh, are false. Okay, we can borrow some. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, tonight's movie uh, shown in the lower equipment bay will uh, uh, be John Wayne, Lou Costello, and Shirley Temple in The Flight of Apollo 13. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast@gmail.com also visit at yesterdaypod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook 
See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. Wow. (laughs) And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the show's As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages. That's Facebook.com slash Yesterday and Today Podcast or Facebook.com slash Third Men. Or you could head to Society6 dot com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's society the number six dot com slash K A M I N S K I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello, the lights just went out. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me.